every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Wednesday, the 6th of December. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, credit rating agency Moody's cut its outlook on China's sovereign credit rating to negative on Tuesday, citing growing risks of persistently lower economic growth and the overhang from a crisis in the property sector. Moody's said there was rising evidence that the government and state institutions would provide financial support and bailouts to weak local governments and state-owned enterprises, posing broad downside risks to China's fiscal, economic and institutional strength. Growth in China's services sector hit a three-month high in November, according to a closely watched private survey. The Kaishin China General Services PMI increased to 51.5 in November from 50.4 in the prior month. It was the 11th straight month of growth in services activity and the fastest expansion since August amid reports of firmer market conditions. The Reserve Bank of Australia maintained its cash rate at 4.35% during its final meeting of the year yesterday, as widely expected. Tuesday's move followed a 25 basis point increase by the central bank in November. In its statements, the board said that progress in bringing inflation back to the target range of 2-3% was slower than previously forecast, with underlying inflation higher than expected amid rising services costs. US job openings fell to their lowest level in more than two years in October, in another sign of a cooling labour market. US businesses advertised 8.7 million job vacancies in October, down from 9.6 million in September. It's the lowest level of openings since March 2021. The number of workers quitting their jobs remained unchanged at 3.6 million, another indicator of softening in the labour market. On today's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Sunil Kashap, Director of FinMet. With a view from Japan is Nick Smith, Japan Strategist at CLSA. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Peter U.S. tech stocks jumped after the job openings data in a mixed session on Wall Street yesterday. The S&P 500 closed 0.1% lower at 4,567, dragged down by stocks in the energy sector, which fell 1.7% as oil prices hit a five-month low. The Dow fell 80 points or 0.2% to 36,125. The tech-heavy Nasdaq Composite added a third of a percent, closing at 14,230. All of the magnificent seven tech stocks, except Meta, made gains. Apple's market cap closed at just over 3 trillion US dollars for the first time since August, after its shares climbed 2.1% on Tuesday. Treasury yields fell after Isabel Schnabel, a hawkish European central bank official, said that further rate rises in the eurozone were rather unlikely, prompting a rally in US bonds. And after the job openings figures were released, yields fell further. The benchmark 10-year yield was down 11 basis points at a three-month low of 4.18%. Gold was down 0.4% after the price of the precious metal hit a record high on Monday. It ended Tuesday at $2,020 an ounce. Oil prices settled at their lowest levels since July. Brent crude oil closed 1.1% lower at $77.20 a barrel. Bitcoin surged 5% to above 44000 It's six straight day higher. It's the highest level since April 2022. And Tuesday's gains bring Bitcoin up more than 160% for this year. 
The US dollar index rose 0.2% to 103.96. The yen was the G10 outperformer, although it was flat against the dollar at 147.15 yen, as it benefited from the narrowing rate differentials versus the other major central banks. The offshore yuan was a third of a percent weaker at approximately 7.17 renminbi per dollar, as major state-owned banks in China sold dollars in response to Moody's decision to downgrade China's credit outlook in an attempt to limit the slide in the yuan. Hong Kong stocks led losses in Asia. The Hang Seng tumbled 318 points, or 1.9%, to a new 13-month low of 16,328. The Hang Seng was led lower yesterday by Wuxi Biologics, which plunged 8.5% after tumbling 24% on Monday, and that takes its two-day decline to more than 30%. The mainland Chinese CSI 300 index fell 1.9%, sending it to the lowest level since February 2019. And the Shanghai Composite tumbled 1.7% to 2,972, plunging below the psychologically important 3,000 level for the first time in five weeks. And looks like the Hang Seng is going to open flat this morning, according to futures markets, starting the day at around about 16,320. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. It's a Wednesday morning. We're edging our way slowly towards Christmas, so hopefully everyone's in a festive mood this morning. We have with us Enzio von Farl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. Feeling festive, Enzio? I'm trying to. And also with us is Sunil Kashap, who is Director of FinMet. Welcome back, Sunil. Good morning. And I must point out, uh, Enzio's got a nice, colourful shirt, so he is in festive mood. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Very mauve this morning. Thank you. Let's start with uh, China's economy and this uh, credit outlook uh, cut by Moody's. Credit ratings agency Moody's Investors Service cut its outlook on China's sovereign credit rating to negative yesterday, citing growing risks of persistently lower economic growth and the overhang from the crisis in the property sector. Moody said there was rising evidence that the government and state institutions will provide financial support to weak local governments, posing broad downside risks to China's fiscal, economic and institutional strength. Moody's affirmed its A1 rating for the country. It last downgraded China's credit rating from AA3 to A1 in 2017. And China's finance ministry responded, saying it was disappointed about the decision. It said China's macroeconomic conditions continue to recover and high-quality development is steadily advancing, the ministry said. It's unnecessary for Moody's to worry about China's economic growth prospects and fiscal sustainability. The ministry also said China's long-term positive fundamentals have not changed and it will remain an important engine for global economic growth in the future. And it added that the impact of the property sector slowdown on local and central government fund budgets was controllable and structural. So, Enzio and Sunil, first of all, um, I suppose we should emphasise this isn't actually a downgrade, is it? It's, uh, it hasn't cut the rating, but nevertheless, I think from what the statistics say is when you get a, um, a rating turning negative, about two-thirds of the time it does eventually lead to an actual downgrade. So how significant um, is this? Well, it's significant in its ignorance. Um, the, the real risk in China is not the, they're dealing with peripheral things like lower economic growth, property sector, financial support. The real risk is this 
inclusion of party state capitalism into the Chinese system, which basically is going to be killing the private sector, is going to be killing the ability of the private sector to create 80% of those demand-driven jobs. And that's the real problem of China. The other stuff is kind of trade school stuff. Yes, do a little bit more fiscal, do a little bit more monetary. No, we don't like it. Well, every other country has bailed out everybody else. The U.S. is pretty good at that within its, in its bailout of the banks some years ago. Um, Europe is very good at these bailout things. So um, I don't know what the fuss about China is, why it's being sort of singled out now, that being bad for China when every other country does these things anyway. I agree with Enzo. I think the, the, the core problem is that of sentiment. Uh, if, you, if you talk to anybody, um, any, any China expert, they'll tell you that sentiment right now is so negative and uh, you, know, you can't change sentiment by uh, you know, intervening in, in small uh, forms in terms of government intervention, in terms of property, etc. There needs to be uh, some solid statements made saying that the government continues to support the private sector and, and something needs to change to change the sentiment amongst the people which is very bearish people feel that you know the the engine of growth for china in the last 20 years has been the private sector and they feel that something has changed and that engine of uh, growth has been switched off Mm-hmm. Well, that's also because we, and we'll get into this later, I hope, in the discussion, we can't really define the private sector anymore in China. It does, it's not quite as pristine as what we sort of, in capitalist societies, think it is. That's that's a that's major correct. problem. I mean, so, for example, uh, a lot of the big private companies now have uh, party members on the board. Yes. Mm-hmm. So so that, that line is Absolutely. now did you get the feeling, because some people have said this, that uh, the, the current uh, Chinese government just doesn't really like the private sector, doesn't trust it, uh, thought it got too big, um, and therefore, you know, wanted to cut it down to size, as we saw with companies like uh, Alibaba, for example. Do you think that's true? I think, um, may have his word. I think it's true about what you say, uh, but the word don't like is maybe too broad. I think they're suspicious of the impact of the private sector if it kept kept growing without control. But I think there's a recognition now that you know that the the capital markets as well as the private sector are very important uh, for the future growth of China. And so the government is coming around, and you see a, a, a sort of winding back of some of the restrictions on the private sector. I think that Xi Jinping is is a very very focused leader and that anything that serves his interests and his party's interests very much more than the government's interests, the party interests, that is good, and anything that doesn't is bad. So he's very good at prioritizing. I've got to give him that. And the prioritization is also that the private sector is in the service of the Communist Party. That's what we mean by party-state capitalism. And that, I think, is going to jar a lot of private entrepreneurs in China who want to go to China, foreigners going into China, indeed we'll get into the cutback in foreign direct investment in a moment, but it's all roots, it's all things emanating from the same root of this party state capitalism, not just because they're going to bail out companies and because they're going to ease a little bit more monetarily kind of thing. So companies are not sure what they have to do, do they? Are they supposed to be making money and being profitable? Or are they supposed to be meeting social and political goals that the Communist Party sets? Yeah, but I think recently there has been a a more 
a clear direction from the party to some of the POEs. We, you know, we've been talking to companies in the last few weeks, and there's a clear direction that they need to start now getting back into action and go back to the level of um, activity they had before. So, so there's a lot of promotion of especially export-led uh, economy, and, uh, and I think that's something that is kicking in. So, mm-hmm. you know, the things are changing on the ground. You can see, you'll start seeing that in the export numbers. The fact is that the world economy is still healthy, and so demand for Chinese goods mm. uh, remains. Uh, and um, the the factory output and etc. is now picking up again. So I, I do believe that we're on at a turning point right now. I know that the stock market continues to go down, and that's mm. more driven by momentum and sentiment. Uh, but on the ground. Uh, we are seeing more activity, especially on the manufactured export side. But has the damage been done? And uh, I've, I cite as an example Alibaba. I mean, look at Alibaba. In some ways, it's really a shadow of its former self. It's been forced to divest itself of a lot of its previous acquisitions. Its share price is at an all-time low, down 75% now from its uh, record high. It's been overtaken by Pindodo in terms of sales. So it's not even the biggest um, retail uh, sort of online giant in China anymore at all. That, that's going to be difficult to reverse now, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. But you think about bottoming, bottoming out now. It's, it's bottomed out. Mm-hmm. So what you have right now is a situation where the core strength of Alibaba still remains. It's still a very innovative company. It still has incredible products. Uh, it still has relevance in the local as well as the regional economy. So the fact is the stock market may have overdone its price action, but the core business of Alibaba remains. Maybe innovation has reduced a bit because they're looking for direction in terms of where they should go f- forward. But the fact is that the products are still great. Mm-hmm. The services are still very much sought after, not only in China, but also within the region. Mm-hmm. You know, the influence of WeChat and Alibaba in Asia cannot be under- underestimated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's still got some things there that are market leaders, even if it's maybe now an Alibaba light that we've got to get used to rather than the, the fully-fledged Alibaba that we used to see. In terms of stock price, yes, probably, and in terms of innovation, probably, but not in terms of the actual products they have. Nothing has mm. changed in terms of the products and services they offer. Mm. The surprising thing, I suppose, about what mood is said, it, it was more what they said in their statement. We've always assumed that, you know, this plan to... Increase the fiscal deficit, raise a trillion yuan in by selling, uh, you know, new government debts to support the regions was actually quite good because, um, you know, China's debt to GDP ratio is not high when compared to a lot of other uh, sovereign countries. But Moody seem to think that's a problem. So do you agree with them or, or, or is China just being sensible in expanding its debt to, uh, to support its, uh, its economy? Well, the answer is yes. I think what I mean by that is that Moody's um, maybe isn't maybe knows at the back of its head. I'm sure it does about the local government financing vehicles that they've got huge problems. That the personal consumption, the consumer default loan cons- default rates are rising rapidly. So I think they see these things more. I agree with you that I think they're being a little bit parochial on don't fiscally stimulate. So in other words, if they didn't stimulate fiscally, it would be better. But again, in economics, we have a trend, which is for me the downward trend of the party state capitalism. And then we have the cycle, which is only about 5% of the whole story. And that, as Sunil is saying, is is probably going up, but it's a cycle on a downward trend in my mind. Uh, Yeah, and I think, you know, Moody's situation is, like you said, it's not a rating downgrade. It's, mm. a, it's a sentiment issue of, of yes. negative. So what they're saying is in the short term, 
we are going to see uh, a negative um, impact for this. But ultimately, what the Chinese government is trying to is trying to do is stimulate their way out of this depression and and then maybe grow their way uh, out of this negativity. Mm. Right. So ultimately, the purpose is to give the economy a sort of a spark, get the economy growing again, and then they that growth can repay the debt that they have put mm. on for, for stimulating the economy. But a lot depends upon how they use this money, doesn't it, mm. to make sure it's productive growth, because you don't want another property sector uh, situation. Mm. And, and they're talking about investing in manufacturing. The problem with that, of course, is that, um, you know, they can't, there's, there's over um, an overcapacity um, in China and the Europeans and the Americans are not going to let um, China export that overcapacity to them, particularly the EU, because they're already very upset with their huge trade deficit with China. Ah, well, now you've got me onto another subject that I'll have to again disagree with. The trade deficit with China is very much because of the foreign multinationals operating in China who are replacing exports back to America, back to Germany, indeed back to India. That was a book that I wrote some years ago um, that I've just reprinted because I just feel that that's a very important thing that, yes, on the face of it, it's a bad trade deficit because of those bad Chinese. The fact is that it's the foreign multinationals replacing exports by going into China for perfectly valid reasons, by the way. Um, That's actually what's causing that trade deficit. Mm. I mean, I, you know, coming back to the point of, of what the purpose of this stimulus is, the purpose of stimulus is to basically change the vibe, right? Mm. And to try and bring some confidence yeah. back. So I think that's what they're going to be focused on. The, the point is right now there's a lot of negativity attached to the SIVs, to the, uh, to the property sector. So what they want to do is try to stimulate that, uh, you know, remove that pain first. And hopefully, and hope that the sentiment changes and then people start thinking positively again. But how does this stimulus work its way through to the consumer if they're borrowing money to give to uh, local governments who may then just go and waste it on more, um, you know, uneconomic uh, uh, projects like it has done in the past? It doesn't really help the, the no. consumer make him feel any better, does it? Well, you're really hitting on a monitoring problem and on a problem of control in China. And that's certainly what she's been trying to, to fight is the corruption at the local level. But then it's a management issue because the local guy is being told, well, if you up your numbers and you're a good guy, and if you don't, you're a bad guy. So mm-hmm. they'll find some kind of phony factory to invest in. So they've got five more factories in XYZ province, time for a promotion and also more pension. And that's all good. But the fact that it is a useless project, that's on the buy, basically. And that's certainly a risk. I mean, the, what we're hearing on the ground there is there's a lot of push to increase the numbers. So we're going back to the, uh, you know, early uh, the part box. of last decade where they're trying to just yeah increase volumes and show the numbers. Mm. Um, and so that's certainly an issue. And so we'll have to see how this gets implemented. And the other area, of course, where they also want to get stimulus from, as well as borrowing, increasing the fiscal deficit, is through the banks. They want the state-owned banks to lend to property uh, developers, provide unsecured loans to them now. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that the banks themselves aren't very profitable at the moment. And this is going to bring their margins down even lower and increase their, um, their, their non-performing loans. So is that the right thing to do? I don't think so, because it's also going to, of course, reduce their reserves, 
Mm. I mean, if their margins sink and their revenues basically also go down ultimately. So I, I think that it, it, if anything, it, it worsens the situation. It doesn't improve it. But there's no choice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, ultimately, yeah. there's no choice. The only way you can actually stimulate the economy again is by using the banks to increase credit and, you know, push money out there to get the sentiment changed. But again, if you don't have a, I'm going to get back to this, if you don't have a private sector that can then use the money where it's supposed to go and create demand-driven jobs as opposed to supply-driven jobs that a bureaucrat thinks up in his little office, I think they need more farmers in Jiangsu province kind of thing, then I think you've got, it, it just, it, that, that mechanism that we'd like to work, which works in capitalism, just is being usurped in, in this party state capitalism in the private sector, I mean, if we look at the numbers recently, they're not too bad, are yes. they? If you look at the Kaishin uh, services mm. sector, uh, it's growing at a three-month high. Even the manufacturing sector uh, in the private uh, survey has unexpectedly expanded. Now, obviously, that contradicts the official figures, which show state-owned enterprises in contraction, but the, the data seems to be improving. No, absolutely. So that's why I think, I think on the ground, uh, you know, it, it, things are more positive compared to the overall sentiment mm. in the capital markets and just the momentum of the equity market. Mm. So we are close to a turning point, I think. You know, if you look at all the technical indicators, you look at all the indicators on the ground, um, there is a changing mood, uh, but the equity markets are still reflecting uh, a sentiment which needs to be changed. But consumer sentiment is not great at the moment, is it? Which presumably no. is a reflection of you know, consumers seeing the value of their homes go down, their stocks Income go down. That, that presumably exactly. is the reason. There was a survey from McKinsey uh, last week which basically shows mainland China, the, the consumers are still remaining pretty luckluster even uh, since the beginning of 2020 mm. when the p- pandemic first started. But that goes back to the point you mentioned about property, right? The, the, the stimulus on the property sector and the um, the SIVs uh, for the regional governments. I think there is a problem there. I think if the government shows that they are interested in in addressing that problem, maybe that will translate into positive sentiment from the consumer and then that will be the turning point. How important is this first ever quarterly deficit in foreign direct um, investments? It's, it's fallen now for the first time since records began between July and September. The Peterson Institute for International mm. Economics said foreign companies were not only withdrawing reinvestment, but were also divesting and repatriating funds. Well, actually, I did a doctorate on the whole subject of direct investment, so one had to kind of learn how to measure the stuff, which is a, it's, a, it's an arcane subject to say direct investment has gone down because all that you're looking at is the equity portion of direct investment coming in, not the debt portion, which could be very different. So I'm not saying it's all wonderful in China. I'm sure there is a slowdown for my reasons of this as this party state capitalism, but I, do, I wouldn't overrate this num- less equity direct investment coming in. I think at the end of the day, what my research showed, okay, this was a long time ago, but I mean, it still holds, I think, is that direct investors go into China very much because of the domestic market in China. China has many people, in case one doesn't know that, all right? And those people want cars, they want clothes, they want tires, they want radio gadgets, they want toothpaste and hair. <laughs> 
addresses, God knows what. And that's why you really invest directly. The, the export side is nice to know, but not actually that much need to know. It would be interesting to see with the German companies how much of their, what proportion of their cars are being exported, what proportion of their local production is being sold in China. I suspect it's the latter is the bigger number. Yeah, and I think if you peel, uh, peel through the numbers, what it's showing is that real impact is in terms of the direct investment of foreign-owned subsidiaries in China. So mm -hmm. what seems to be happening is some of the foreign companies are pulling capital out, whereas for many years they were investing more money into China. And I think right now they feel that they've reached a point where uh, domestic demand is low, um, yes. You know, the uh, export, sorry, the manufacturing for exports is moving back to homeland or moving back to other countries like Vietnam and India. So that's why uh, capital is being pulled out of the facilities uh, in China and moved elsewhere. So that's why you're seeing this impact in terms of deficit. Meanwhile, you're seeing Chinese direct investment in Mexico go absolutely through the roof. And that's why Mexican U.S. trade is higher than China U.S. trade, because the Chinese companies quite correctly said, if you're going to embargo us from the U.S. side, well, then we'll just go into Mexico and, and sneak behind the barriers. And similarly, if you look at the China-Vietnam trade, it's just mm. gone through the roof. Mm. Right? Yes. Uh, and if you compare that with the China-Europe trade, which has gone down, so it seems to be a, a sort of just a flow issue of uh, how the flows are changing rather than... A bit of a tango, uh, yeah. Exactly. And I presume that a lot of that is American companies, which are coming under pressure, of course, from the government to, to not invest any further um, in China or even to pull out of some of their businesses from China. Yeah, this is what I call the oil and water syndrome, that the so much in the world is now the government is the bubble of oil at the top, has no idea of what is happening on the ground with the business sector. That's the water and so the government, these politicians whom I used to work with day and night on China-US relations, they all seem to think they know what's good for the country. Meanwhile, the businesses are getting very worried about what this, also what Trump now wants, another 10% import tariff, and what the politicians want is worrying the businesses in America itself. Correct. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's all part of the, the story of trying to um, insulate yourself against uh, geopolitical changes and uh, especially with the election coming up next year. Yes, of course. I think we may find, though, that the government's not so keen itself on um, too much stimulus, isn't it? I mean, if you look at what the PBOC is saying, uh, they're not going to slash interest rates, that's mm -hmm. for sure. Uh, their, their priority uh, seems to be better quality uh, growth rather than the amount of growth. And they're basically saying also that this is going to be a long mm -hmm. haul. It's going to excuse me, take several years to dig themselves out of this hole. Well, the economic clock for China would suggest that there's an excess supply of money and an excess supply of goods. So the excess supply of money, how much can you, how much more can you cut? It's what, what Sunil was alluding to before, that the marginal utility of an additional cut in interest rates, of an additional renminbi in the system is very, very low compared to the structural reforms that need really that's where the high marginal utility would be absolutely i mean so if you look at this there's a surplus i mean the interest rates i think the interest rates in um, in china are lower than any major economy mm. bar japan mm. uh, and so that's the first time it's happened for 30 years um, and that's driven by the fact that there is there's no shortage of of money in the system uh, the, the the problem is it's a sentiment issue people don't want to invest 
Um, so I think I think from that point of view, it's uh, you know there's there are limited tools that the Chinese government has to try <laughs> and um, make a difference, which in in the conventional sense of lower interest rates or monetary stimulus, etc. Um, you know, there's there's fiscal stimulus they could do, uh, which is partly what they're doing with this with this uh, uh, stimulus that we're talking about. Uh, but they don't want to go over and above. Uh, that and and do in a wasteful kind of spending. But you see, compared to the Deng years, where of course the, the the private sector did really have a role to play, I think that's again the big juxtapositioning that's going on in my head with the structural reforms. And how how big an issue is debt, personal debt, on the mainland? We saw um, a survey or report in the Financial Times this week. Uh, that says defaults by Chinese borrowers are now at a record high. More than 8 million people officially uh, blacklisted mm. by authorities. <clears throat> Excuse me, after missing payments on everything from home mortgages to business loans. That's about 1% of working-age Chinese adults. It's, that seems to be a bigger number than maybe we thought um, there. So what, what sort of impact is that going to have? I think more muted than we think because we're dealing only with urban um, personal debt. We're not dealing with rural personal debt, which I don't think anybody except maybe Scott Rizzolo over at Stanford has a clue of what's actually going on on the, on the rural side of the equation. I'm not trying to belittle the problem. The problem would be no problem if there was an, a good income outlook, but China is riddled with income insecurity because the jobs growth just ain't there because the private sector ain't there. Mm. So yeah, I, I don't think it's a problem of leverage. I mean, if you look at the average uh, personal indebtedness uh, average across all the population compared to any other major economy, it's much, much, much lesser. Mm. Uh, and anecdotally also, people you know, uh, uh, say that there, there's enough savings out there. The problem is people are not willing to put those savings to, to work. Mm. And that's why the economy is so sluggish. Do you think global debt is going to become an issue next year? Um, because, you know, that certainly is high, isn't it? Even if the Chinese portion is not so worrisome, global so, debt. Yeah, so I think sovereign debt, okay, is an issue. Uh, you know, you're already getting uh, several economies close to 100% of GDP. Uh, and uh, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see how um, this debt reduces. There, there, there doesn't seem to be any plan to reduce sovereign debt in major current uh, mm. countries. That's a problem of democracy that Schwengler already taught us back in 1919 in Munich, that the politicians get elected by promising everybody everything for free, basically. And Europe is the incarnation of this, what I called a welfare museum, um, where you don't need to work, you get pay sky-high taxes, but you're, it's a cradle to, to grave situation. And that's going to just keep on driving up the deficits. They will. The only way that they can do it is to erode them by kind of growing them less quickly and then letting inflation eat them up in a real sense. So that's why, I mean, so they print mm. their way through this. So, yeah. so I think, you know, yeah. coming back to the topic of uh, topic du jour generally about interest rates, you know, the interest rates aren't coming down so soon because ultimately somebody has to finance that debt. Somebody has to buy mm. the debt. Mm. So while everybody would like the, you know, reduction in interest rates to come about, it'll be interesting to see who's going to buy the debt if, they, if you reduce interest rates. Mm. And even the bond yields, I think, are going to go up because they have to increase the issuance of bonds. And if you issue the, the supply of something, the price goes down and the yield goes up, not down. So um, I think that... That needs that we're talking. We're focused so much in the markets on the short term. That these Fed funds of tinkering out at about a quarter of a percent. I think the real action is again back in the bond arena. 
And what about, though, if uh, inflation comes down further? It's coming down pretty fast, isn't it? If you look at the oh. data, um, you know, inflation is well off its peak now and still um, coming down. So, um, you know, can interest rates, real rates stay this high if um, inflation keeps tumbling? I'm not sure that it is tumbling, curiously. When we looked, when we last discussed the um, U.S. inflation rate of, I believe it was October, perhaps it was November, it doesn't matter, um, we determined that it's the core inflation is still quite robust, if not rising. Yeah, I mean, it's it's 3% plus. And yeah. if you look back a year ago, what people expected to happen in December of 2023, the, rate, the, the expectations were much lower, mm. right? So tumbling is not the word. It is declining steadily, but it's not declining as much as the equity investors would like it. The OECD says inflation's at a two-year low now in, uh, in, in well, rich nations. Yeah, yeah. They tell you the time by looking at somebody else's watch. <laughs> and, and let me ask you about the markets um, overall then. First of all, the, the China markets, it's been a pretty grim uh, time, hasn't it, for, uh, for China. Chinese stocks hit mm. an almost five-year low. That's the CSI 300 index down at its lowest level since February 2019. The Hang Seng um, is at a 13-month low. Mm. Um, sentiment really gloomy at the moment in equity markets. Everyone I speak to um, is really quite negative right, right now about the state of the local stock market here, same on the mainland um, as well, presumably coming back to your earlier points about uh, confidence. It is confidence. But like you mentioned, the bottom lines are still okay. I mean, it's not as if you've seen 30% decline in, PN, in, in profits of uh, private companies. So the, the actual company performance, while it's not fantastic, is not mm. as bad as their stock prices. So if you look at the PEs, Bees are tumbling, right? Because uh, the, the the earnings are stable, but the prices are going down. So, so why are stocks falling so much when, as you say, earnings are not too bad, interest rates are coming, uh, starting to come down um, in various places around the world? They're talking about what hundred hundred plus basis points of cuts in the US mm-hmm. um, at the moment. Every market seems to be reacting positively to all of that, except here. Well, governance. I think it's it's the a government here seeking to emulate China by saying if we all smile and go to nightstands and have a real good time, then we will all get out and vote and we were all going to be so happy that we just got to go and spend again. That again gets back to this oil and water analogy of mine that the government really, um, excluding one politician who always does walk the ground here, um, is very much out of touch with what's really happening and they're not things that, that are crying out to be done, vocational training, English, which is a dre- which is in a dreadful state. How can we be an international financial center with no English capabilities? Um, these are the issues that need addressing, and they're simply the social housing. China's telling us to do social, or this sort of, for, for these cage people, housing. Um, those are the issues that need addressing, and I'm afraid that they're not being addressed by the local government, so people have lost faith. Besides which, of course, we are the water ski off the back of the Chinese speedboat, and people, from my view of this party-state capitalism, just don't really want to touch China because it's, it's, it's such a, a, a risky bet from the government's angle. Yeah, I mean, the opportunity for Hong Kong is it can still be a sort of an oasis in this Good. sort of uh, regulatory quagmire where it says that, okay, look, we will allow 
a free a free market economy to reign and and you know and try to show showcase Hong Kong much better that way. But instead, they seem to spend too much time in terms of trying to follow the the line to the line of well, or to outguess the line. That's that's my concern. It's yes. it's sort of I think they think I should do the following, and I'm just yes. waiting for yes. some local person to say, well, let's put communist board members onto the onto the company boards here. I can I'm just waiting for that to happen. Mm. Not that China's asking it. Somebody here will say, well, actually, I can I can then secure my own um, kudos with the Chinese on the mainland. And what does it mean for Hong Kong's role as an international financial center? A lot of commentary at the moment mm. on Chinese social media platforms basically saying uh, Hong Kong's standing as a financial center, international financial center, is now a thing of the past, described as a relic of a financial center. What, uh, obviously, the government pushing back very hard on that, but do you, is there any truth in that? Um, ask the people and look at the markets, right? You can see that very clearly. The fact is that if you start making changes like not renewing visas for journalists, yes. you start giving indications yeah. that you don't want to see negative research, and you start giving those kind of feelers into the market, people read into your action rather than your words. Yes. Mm. So, you know, I think that's where, uh, where it stands right now. The government should take action to show that they are different from the policy that are taking place in the mainland. They should try to distance themselves clearly. Well, or just focus on what on our own vegetable patch. That's what happened to Don Quixote at the end of his story with Cervantes, that he just goes and hoes his own vegetable patch and really makes a beautiful garden of it, which would be English vocational training, um, social housing problems here, more innovation in Hong Kong. It's all this, I can't stand this word hub anymore. It's as if it's sort of hub Kong. It's it's ridiculous that everything now becomes a hub of what, with no spokes? Mm. But it, the, Hong Kong really needs to repair its relationship with the US and with various European countries, doesn't it? That's part of the problem. But yes. instead, it seems to be prioritizing the Middle East, saying that's where we should look, that's where we can develop relations, that's where we're going to get IPOs from instead of Chinese ones that have dropped off a cliff. Do you think that's right? Well, the sand is always greener on the other side of the fence, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I mean, to, to be fair, it's not also you know the, the fault of the local government I and mean, the geopolitics pressure, especially of course, from, yes. from the US, US from yeah. the US Congress, uh, is is something that they can't really deal with, um, and I think that's that's a problem. Uh, so but again, I wouldn't again I wouldn't blame America myself. I think it's it's not focusing on it's something that we have in stoicism. It's not what happens to you; it's what you do with it. And it's the same thing here. What are we doing with it? What are we doing about our domestic competitiveness in, in Hong Kong, our education system in Hong Kong, our, edu our English system, our, ed our lack of ed English education, vocational training in Hong Kong, training for jobs of the future in Hong Kong. China isn't standing in the way. China parties once sees us as a bunch of sport brats. It's valid in the sense that I think Hong Kong needs to position itself a little a di little bit differently from the mainland, uh, yes. and probably like like Enzo said, Beijing doesn't have a problem with that because they mm. want to have a, they want us an island exactly. They want to have a platform where capitalism can, can prosper, mm. but the local government does seems to believe that no, it need, they need to be closer uh, from a yeah. policy point Timorous. of view to to uh, try to, to it's preemptive obedience, and that's 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 Hong Kong's real problem. It is not 
um, lack of brains. It is not bad. China, China wants the best for us, and as Sunil was saying, wants us to be different so that it can help China. Guess what? And guess what? Help Xi Jinping and his aspirations. Why not? Okay, well, very interesting discussion. We could go on for a lot longer there. Thank you both very much indeed. You heard Enzia Ronfal, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, Sunil Kashap, who's Director of FinMet. <laughs> I'm joined now by Nick Smith, who is Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. Morning, Nick. Good morning, Jim. Um, let's start with that uh, inflation data uh, from Tokyo, which is sort of considered a leading indicator of nationwide trends. Hit 2.3% year on year, slowed sharply from the previous month. There do seem to be signs, don't there, that um, inflation is sort of coming down once again, not just in Japan, but around the world. Uh, yeah, Um the, the headline number would suggest that um, that if you weren't looking at the uh, the contents of it. So what's going on is um, we have a cost of living crisis here. Um, the gov- uh, the um, voters are very angry with the government and what they, the um, government did was uh, introduce massive subsidies on um, energy prices. Um, they can't afford it, so the issue... Um, uh, JGB's government bonds and uh, and get the the Bank of Japan to buy those bonds. Um, so, I think the best measure of uh, of inflation is the uh, the core core ex uh, fresh food and uh, and energy. So, strip the energy out and uh, and also fresh food is is quite volatile. Um, if you look at that, then nationwide in um, in October it was uh, it was four mm-hmm. percent. I think the um, the Tokyo number was was point uh, two uh, um, percentage points lower, um, and so you'd assume that um, the, the nationwide would uh, would too. But still, if you look at the numbers, it's still way higher than anything we've seen since uh, the early nineteen eighties. So you're sort of in the the strange situation there, where the Bank of Japan is trying to create inflation, and then the government's giving out subsidies to try and offset the very inflation that the the Bank of Japan is creating or wants to create uh, yeah i mean obviously what we need here in japan is a conclave lock them all in the room <laughs> and for god's sake get them to uh, to talk to each other yeah um we i think it is um it is bordering on criminal that they uh, they had a plan to um, print money, drive up prices without any um, thought towards getting wages to go up. Uh, and obviously, if you do that, then um, uh, prices up without uh, wages up means consumption down. And we're starting to get a rollover in uh, consumption in Japan. We're getting um, increasing evidence of price hikes uh, failing and, and sometimes uh, having to get rolled back. Um, I, I think we're very definitely the position where the the Bank of Japan needs to dismantle its uh, yield curve control. I, the, the consensus says April. I think it's going to be earlier than that, um, and uh, and start to think about uh, actually raising rates. Certainly, getting rid of the uh, the degree of sort of one and a half trillion yen a week worth of, uh, of bond buying. And how is it going to get uh, wages up? Because it hasn't got the, it's got inflation, but it doesn't seem to have the sort of inflation that it wants um, at, at the moment. So how are the, how how are wages going to go up? Um, I think for the BOJ and their ivory towers, they they think that they don't have as much as they want. What we have is core core inflation of four uh, percent. Um, that's that's quite serious, bearing in mind how little uh, wage increases uh, mm. people have had. Um, I, I think. Um, 
wages uh, are a straight function of uh, of supply and demand, um, and um, the uh, working age population is dropping about uh, half a percent a year, accelerating to three quarters of a percent a year by the end of the decade. Uh, and so there was a big bump up in um, in wages in uh, spring of this year. Um, I think that the uh, the bump will be uh, larger um, in 2024. But actually, what's going on at the moment is that uh, a number of companies are uh, announcing early wage hikes because uh, they're, they're spooked that they uh, they won't have the people. If you look at uh, bankruptcy numbers, bankruptcies are, are well under control. Uh, but where they are rising, they're rising because of uh, bankruptcies due to not being able to get the employees. That's a heck of a turnaround for Japan. Mm, okay. Well, it's a, an interesting situation for sure. We'll be interested to see when the Bank of Japan does finally get rid of its yield curve um, control. Let me switch topics a little bit. I just want to ask you about um, the Tokyo Stock Exchange's reforms. We're coming up to January now when the Tokyo Stock Exchange is going to start publishing uh, its list of companies um, that are meeting its uh, target to improve their, their use of capital to get their um, uh, to get their book values up. Um, how's that going? Is there any sort of sense of urgency brewing among companies now as, as we get closer to that uh, that date? Yeah, I mean, it's an odd thing about Japan that name and shame really does have an effect. Um, I think around July time, only a third of companies had uh, had responded and the uh, the exchange was quite frustrated about it. We were all saying, well, just, just publish a list. Uh, <laughs> and they've... Um, They've uh, agreed to do this from uh, the beginning of, uh, of January. We're hearing a, a, a lot of absolute panic amongst companies in, in trying to do things in, uh, in preparation for that. So logically, you'd say, but you know, you've got to come up with a plan. It doesn't have to be a credible plan. Uh, won't a lot of companies do that? But uh, that doesn't seem to be the, the way. So the, the zeitgeist is, uh, is definitely in favor of this. So has it sparked now a wave of share buybacks? Is is that on the increase? Um, buybacks have been good um, at a time when they're uh, they're sliding in the US because they've done it with uh, with debt and the cost of debt's going up, and the the uh, Democrats put a uh, a tax on it. In Japan, it's done with um, the osmotic pressure of cash on wallet, uh, and so uh, buybacks have been yeah, very nice. Thank you. Um, uh, and also, we're getting um, a good run of companies hiking their uh, their dividends. So, I think in terms of that combined um, yield of uh, buybacks and dividends, Japan's going to be the place to uh, the place to be. Uh, and what about um, companies unwinding their portfolios of stakes in other companies? All these famous cross shareholdings that Japan has been um, famous for. We saw uh, Tokyo um, decide to sort of part with forty billion dollars of stakes in other companies. Uh, uh, Toyota is this something that's also on the increase it is I mean I kind of um, jumped the gun on that the uh, there were rumblings from Toyota um, a, a few years ago and uh, I talked about it then obviously it's uh, better to be early than to be late but um, they this isn't their first move on that but um but it uh, does seem to be uh, accelerating and obviously the um, the point is um, Toyota had been um, the bad boy in terms of uh, of corporate governance. It's been sitting on these vast cross shareholdings, um, and yet it's it's finding competitive pressures in its business that are just forcing it to um, admit economic reality. So uh, they are the thought leader in Japan, where Toyota goes, the rest will uh, follow. So that really helps with the rest of them. 
So this is presumably also in leading to an increase in people voting out or voting um, against the company boards. It certainly is. Obviously, um, the to, to my mind, the the big standout was Mitalai um, uh, at um, at Canon, uh, where his support rate was only fifty point six percent. So, managed to keep his his job with uh, <laughs> by the skin of his teeth. Um, yeah, it's becoming a uh, a blood sport. People are, uh, are daring to say, no, actually, we're we're not impressed with um, with management. It's um, Cannon's return on equity is halved uh, over the last uh, over the period that Mitterrand has been in in the job, and people are, are, are no longer being polite about it and saying your fault. We need someone that can can fix this problem. So this has been a big theme of 2023. It's really helped the uh, the Tokyo market, one of the best performing markets in the world uh, this this year. Is it going to continue into into next year? So I think. Um, the the big story into the following year will be the uh, the restructuring. There's been a massive improvement in in profitability in Japan. Is it so good it can get no better? No, it's still lousy. Uh, and but I think the pressure from uh, from government combined with the pressure from shareholders will will continue to to lift that up. Latest quarter, obviously, operating profits up twenty five percent when global operating profits were up three. Mm. Uh, so there is a profit story here in uh, in Japan that's that's quite a global standout. You've got some worries about uh, about global growth, um, but um, I, I think that the uh, the restructuring story will trump that. And I suppose there's going to be more and more companies thinking about going private and we're going to see more management buyouts and just deciding they they don't want to stay listed. That's absolutely true. Um, management buyouts are on fire. Um, so far this year, 168% above the um, the total for last year. Um, I, I think a lot of what goes on is, is management look and say, we've, um, for one, the cost of borrowing money is only going to go up from here. Uh, do it before uh, before that happens, but also uh, bear in mind that um, th- this this company has got lots of cash, lots of real estate, lots of equity cross shareholdings, uh, and so actually it's been mispriced because people have um, uh, evaluated cash at essentially zero uh, because they say you've got lots of cash, but you haven't been sharing it with us. Mm, so, um, so, so I, I do think a lot of these MBOs are a steal. Mm, in- interesting. And and I don't, don't mean that in a big, in a positive way. I, I, I think there's, <laughs> there's something close on criminal in this. Yes, yeah, for sure. And, and what about uh, the the Fed? Markets are assuming now that there's going to be at least 100 basis points of rate cuts next year um, from the Fed. I have to say, I'm not sure I, I, I believe that personally, but um, but nevertheless, that's what the markets uh, think. What sort of if that happens, what sort of impacts is that going to have for, for Japanese stocks? I think probably what it means is U.S. rates come down. The um, the uh, performance of, uh, of value stocks have been very much in line with um, uh, with U.S. rates. So if U.S. rates uh, peak, when they peak out and come off, which they're doing at the moment, um, that is bad for low price to book, bad for um, uh, low price earnings. But uh, we're still got a country where uh, we're in um, in deflation. And the real yield on government bonds is uh, is a lot less than nothing, in which case there's a first for yield to buy the dividend yielders. Okay, well, Nick, always good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed for your uh, thoughts this morning. That's Nick Smith, who is Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk.
Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. And you can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll be joined on the show by Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Christopher Lee, partner at Farron Augustine and Alexander Investments. We're also going to look at how Hong Kong's mandatory provident funds have performed so far this year with Francis Chung, Executive Chairman of MPF Holdings. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.